Well, a long time ago, for me, in what feels like almost another life, uh, the year after I graduated high school, I did one year of community college before joining the Marines. And in that year of community college, I took a class on world religions that was taught by a Buddhist professor. It was a very fascinating, very interesting class, a lot of things I'll never forget that I learned in that time. But one particular class time, the professor endeavored to answer the question, is there a God, from a Buddhist perspective? And so as a Buddhist, an American Buddhist, born and raised in the West, but with Eastern philosophy, He sought to answer, is there a God? And he answered that question with a parable. The parable went something like this. There was a man who was walking in a forest. When all of a sudden an arrow soared out of the trees and struck him in the leg. He reached down, pulled the arrow out, and upon examining it, he noticed that the arrowhead was covered in poison. Now, it makes no difference who shot the arrow. In fact, technically, it doesn't matter if there is a shooter at all. All that matters is that unless he acts wisely and quickly, death is imminent. And so his focus is on that problem alone. The professor went on to explain the parable, and he said, the enlightened Buddhist then does not seek to know whether or not there is a God. It makes no difference. Instead, he searches the natural world, and he meditates on wisdom literature, not to relate to a God, but in order to deal with the poison of life and death. This was not at all impressive to me as a young man, but as I've thought about that answer in the past, it's come clear to me that that sterile and impersonal approach to life's problems is not unique to Buddhism. In fact, some people view the Bible in a very similar way as Buddhists view and meditate upon the natural world. They read the Bible as one might read a survival manual, simply to search for instructions on what we can do to deal with the problems that face our lives. In fact, this is how many Jews in Jesus' day had been reading and studying the scriptures for generations. They stumbled upon a very similar problem In our text today, Jesus is going to deal with this very wrong approach to God's Word. I want you to open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to John chapter 5. I'm planning to finish this chapter today. Next week, we'll be in a a three-week sermon series celebrating Christmas time. We're going to wrap up John 5, and then after the first of the year, we'll be in John 6. I'm going to go ahead and read the the passage we're going to be in today. That's John 5, verses 37 through 47. Then pray, and my whole hope is just to explain what Jesus is saying here to the 
Jews and then seek to apply it to our present situation. So if you've got your Bible with you, go to John chapter 5. I'll start in verse 37. You can follow along with me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Lord Jesus here very bluntly presses on the problem with the Pharisees' understanding of the Scriptures. These Jews had the Scriptures up till that time. They had the Old Testament in their laps. Every Sabbath, they would gather around the scrolls of the Old Testament, and they would read and recite and memorize and study and analyze and scrutinize. Father, that they were masters of the law, and yet they missed the forest for the trees. As Christ himself stood in front of them, they could not and would not recognize him. Lord, I pray that we would not fall prey to that same error. God, I pray that this very morning as we read through the words of Jesus, we won't miss Jesus. I pray that as we read through Holy Scripture preserved for us throughout the ages, that we would take these words very seriously. And not just to build up knowledge, Lord. I know that that is such a possible error. But my prayer this morning, Lord, is that by reading these texts, by my explanation of them as a man and, and, and the hearing of my brothers and sisters here and, and guests who are with us, Lord, I just pray that we would grow closer to Christ, that we would know him more fully, that our relationship with Jesus, whose birth we celebrate in this season, would grow so help us to do that, Lord. And that, that's, a, that's a huge ask, I know. And it's, it's a huge ask for us to accomplish in any natural way. And so I, I ask for you to send your Holy Spirit, equip us, fill us, give us insights here and grow our love for you. Please do that, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. This story, this uh, discourse, Jesus' words here, are part of a conversation that he's having with some Jews on a Sabbath day, right after he healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. He heals this lame man, he begins walking on the Sabbath with his mat, uh, and he upsets some of these religious Jews. At first, they're upset about the man carrying the mat, then they're upset with Jesus telling him to carry the mat, then they're upset with Jesus having performed the miracle on the Sabbath. And lastly, and most importantly, they're upset with Jesus 
because he said that the reason that he was able to perform this miracle was because he is the son of the father. I want to read for you the, 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 the problem that comes about earlier in this chapter. This is the summary of why the Jews were so furious. John 5, 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling his own father, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Get it? That's what the Jews are upset about. And so this is what Jesus is responding to. He's explaining how it is that they can and ought to believe that he is, in fact, equal with the Father. In other words, Jews, you are right. What I am saying to you, yes, in fact, is a, is a claim to divinity. You're right. I am saying that I am equal with the Father. And here's why you should believe me. And he gives reasons as to why. In fact, he indicts these Jews for their rejection of him, their refusal to believe in him, not just on his own testimony, but that there were a score of witnesses that had been testifying on his behalf. Last week, I showed that the weightier the claim, the more proof is needed to validate it. Jesus was totally okay with that principle. Yep. Significant claims warrant significant evidence. These Jews had plenty of evidence, plenty of witnesses, and yet they would not believe. So far, Jesus has already offered up testimony of the Father, God, of John the Baptist, the last living prophet before Jesus, and his miracles, which bear witness to his truth. Now, he tears apart and explains, he, he unpacks, if you will, what he means that the Father himself bears witness. So let's look together in verses 37 through 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So again, he tells us that the Father bears witness. Father bears witness, just as John the Baptist tells us that Jesus is true. His miracles prove that he is true. The Father himself, God himself, bears witness to Jesus. He claims here that he was sent by God, the Father who sent me. And I want, I want you to watch this because Jesus goes on to explain how it is that the Father bears witness. Because he starts by saying, his voice you've never heard, his form you have never seen. How would he say that? Is Jesus saying that because like, well, he has done this in the past, you just missed the timing, sorry, too bad, so sad, you, you, you weren't there for it, so you don't. You don't get to have the Father as your witness. No, not at all. Now these Jews know, as Jesus does as he says this, some people have heard God's voice. And some people have seen his form. The people who came before them. In fact, all the Old Testament prophets did, in fact, hear the voice of God. They saw his form. Perhaps what might come to mind, as he'll unpack later here, Moses. Moses heard the voice of God. God even said he spoke with Moses face to face. Moses saw a burning bush. He literally saw a form. The people who were with Moses heard the voice of God on the mountaintop. It was so uh, intense that they had to say, send us a prophet. We can't hear the voice of God any longer and live. 
They saw the Shekinah glory of God. They could look up and see a burning mountaintop. They saw a cloud, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. They could look and see God is with us. They heard his voice. They saw his form. Just like the other prophets, Elijah, who hears the voice of God in a whisper on the mountain, like Daniel and, and, uh, and his, his, his men with him, who not only hear and see in visions and dreams, but literally they see God with them in the fiery furnace. Yes, indeed, there were people who came before these Jews, who had seen the form, who had heard the voice. So Jesus says, the Father is a witness. How is it that the Father is a witness to these Jews? They weren't there during the days of the Exodus. They weren't in the fiery furnace. They hadn't been given those dreams and visions like the prophets of old. How is it that the Father bears witness? And the answer is that the Father bears witness by the Holy Scriptures. You do not have His Word, God's Word, the Father's Word. You do not have His Word abiding in you. That's the problem. Not only have you not heard his voice, as those in the past, you've not seen his form, but they'd been sent a prophet, a living prophet in John, and they refused to believe. They'd seen the miracles, God acting in their midst in Christ, they refused to believe, and they had been given the word of God. They had full access to the scriptures, more access to the scriptures than any other random Jew in their day. And yet, they do not believe the one whom he has sent. That's the proof. What's the proof that Jesus needs to know? You don't have God's word abiding in you. You don't have it in you. And the reason that I know you don't have the word abiding in you, you don't believe me. You don't believe the one whom he, the Father, has sent. That's how I know you don't have his word abiding in you. Before we move on here, I just want to say, you and I, believers, will probably never until death hear the audible voice of God, nor see his form. But that does not mean that we, like these Jews, have no witness of God for us. We have the witness of God in the testimony of Scripture, his word. So we are not left on our own to try to discern by our own intellect, by our own ability to ascertain knowledge and truth. Is Jesus real? We have the word that is the Father testifying on behalf of Jesus. We are not lacking anything, and neither were these Jews. And he says this about the Jews. He says in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. You search the scriptures. The word for search there is diligently search. It's examine. It's not just a cursory kind of, I'll read through every once in a while when we have some spare time. It's, it's a study with the desire to learn and grow. So he's saying, listen, you, you pine over the texts. And why? You, you think that in them you have eternal life. You're looking for a cure. And it is they that bear witness about me. These Jews knew the scriptures. Again, like I said, they knew these scriptures more than anybody knew these scriptures. And yet, that was insufficient for them. 
Because they could not see that the fulfillment of those verses was standing right in front of them. They searched those scriptures like the Buddhist, as I mentioned in the intro. They meditated on the philosophies of life, the things they found there, and that did not draw them closer to Christ. And the proof was their rejection of him. The word was not in them. It was not abiding in them. They're looking for eternal life, and they miss it because they miss Jesus. The entire Old Testament points to Christ. It is they, that's the scriptures, that's plural, scriptures. All of these scrolls, the collection of writings of the Old Testament prophets and psalmists and Proverbs writers and historical writers, all of these prophets of the Old Testament and their, the collection of their, of their scriptures together, they bear witness about Jesus. The Old Testament points to Christ. The promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joshua, David, Daniel, and all the rest, they point to Christ. They point us to the Savior. At the Mission Church, we preach through Old Testament and New Testament. We love doing this. In fact, this is our, our, our mode. If you haven't noticed this, you can look back and see. I typically preach through a New Testament book and then an Old Testament book. New Testament book, Old Testament book. And then we stick in there sometimes a sermon series that are devoted to a particular topic from a passage. We look at a passage and do that. We do not avoid the Old Testament at all. And when I preach through an Old Testament book, like the many months that we spent in Daniel not long ago, that's not us as a church saying, we're just going to forget Christ for a while and just do Old Testament. Because all the passages of the old tell us of him. This is why every sermon can point us to Christ. We don't take a break from talking about Jesus when we're in the Old Testament. If you are uh, starting a new Bible reading plan come the first of the year, it's kind of a typical thing Christians uh, endeavor to do. and It's very typical for those to start at the beginning of the Bible. A lot of the plans do. It doesn't mean you're going to have to spend three quarters of the year before you get to Jesus. Because we see him right out of the gates. And these Jews, though, could not see Jesus in the texts. No matter how clearly he was there. No matter how God had constantly pointed to his coming, they could not see him. And why is it that those Jews could not see Jesus in the texts? Why is it that when he's standing in front of them, they don't recognize him? They hold the scriptures, they pine over these, and they see Jesus, and they're like, yeah, whatever. Why? How do they not go, wait, wait a minute, you're this guy. And the answer is in the next verse, 40. Yet you refuse to come to me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. These Jews, because of the Sabbath issue, they're furious with Jesus. They are enraged by him. A murderous rage, in fact, that they are now seeking to kill him. And it becomes clear that nothing he's going to say to them will matter. He's not about to change their minds. I'll give you a really good argument, and then you'll go, oh, good point, Jesus. Not going to happen. Why? Because they've already made up their mind about him. They refuse. They refuse to believe in Jesus. Now, they don't just refuse to believe in one man's testimony. They refuse to believe many things. They refuse to believe the undeniable prophet of their day, 
John the Baptist, who pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One who he's not even worthy to untie his sandals. They refused to believe their present prophet. John probably has been killed already by this time, but they did not believe him in their day. They refused to believe Jesus' miracles. In fact, the miracles made them angry. And they refused to believe the written records, to believe the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, the Father's witness to the Son. They didn't believe any of those things. And why? Because they didn't want to. They didn't want to. They refuse. The problem was not a lack of evidence. The problem was not a lack of communication from God or a lack of clarity or a lack of volume of evidence. It was hardness of heart. J.C. Ryle, commentator, wrote this. Unbelief does not arise so much from want of evidence as from want of the will to believe. Simply put, they don't want to believe. They don't want. What these Jews were suffering from was not mere skepticism. It's not even skepticism that Jesus rebukes. You notice that's not his whole issue here. How dare you be skeptical of my testimony of who I am? He doesn't say that. The whole nature of his reply here seems to encourage a level of skepticism. Test for yourself, as the rest of the scriptures will tell us. What he rebukes here is hardness of heart, is a refusal to believe. You refuse to come to me, and you may have life. I was reminded by how similar this sounds to Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. This is where there's a rich man in a a mansion and a poor man who sits outside the front of the mansion and just kind of the inversion of what happens to them in eternity. That's kind of the idea. Both of them die. Lazarus goes to be uh, with the Lord. He is in, he's in glory. And then we see the rich man is in, is in prison. He, he, is, he is in a place of torment and torture. And so there's this exchange between the rich man and Abraham, who's in paradise. And at one point he says, well, send somebody to go tell my family, my father and brothers. Because if an angel shows up, then at least then they'll hear, and then they'll believe. Then they'll believe, and then they'll be able to get into paradise. And this is how the parable goes. Abraham said to them, this is the reply from Abraham to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the scriptures. They have the Bible. Let them listen to, trust in, submit to the Bible. They already have what they need. The rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... They will repent. This is fascinating. Fascinating. What Jesus says here. He's he's in his story, in his parable. He's speaking. This is what Abraham replies. He doesn't say, yeah, you're right. If they saw a supernatural being from the dead shows up, who do you think maybe he wants to be sent from the dead? Probably himself. Hey, I'll go. I'll go do it. Get me out of this place. If someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. Will that work? No, this is what Jesus says. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't trust the Bible, the scriptures, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's significant. 
It's hard to imagine that Jesus doesn't also have in mind here his own resurrection. It's not that all of a sudden he comes out of the grave and then all the Pharisees fall to their knees and go, oh, you are the Christ. What happens? Out of fury and anger, they come up with lies and bribe people in order to perpetuate the lie that that Christ is still dead. And then they go after and they seek after Christ's people in order to persecute him further and kill them. How dare anybody tell of this miracle? Their fury doesn't end at the resurrection, but it continues. And this disease still lives and thrives today, the refusal to come. The problem today for so many people is not that God is silent. The problem today is not that there's an absence of evidence the problem today is not that the, the scriptures are so unclear. No, they're not. No, they're not. We can acknowledge challenging parts, things we're trying to figure out, and places even Christians disagree on. That's not what we're talking about. The scriptures are abundantly clear on who Jesus is. The problem is that people refuse to come and surrender to Christ. That's the problem. And what happens to the person who refuses to come to Jesus. What, happen, what happens in their lifetime? What happens still on this earth? What happens to these Jews? When they refuse to come to Christ, they become his enemies. In other words, Jesus is not a take him or leave him figure. No one has a meh relationship with Jesus after encountering him. He is a love him or hate him figure. He is a friend or enemy. There is no neutral stance with Jesus. There wasn't in his day walking on earth, nor is there today. There is no neutrality here. Because of their refusal to believe in him, they were predisposed then not to just have a shoulder-shrugging response to, oh, apparently he did some interesting stuff. No. They were predisposed to see all of his works as deserving judgment rather than praise. That's what it was. Genuine encounters with Christ polarize people. They polarize the world. Real encounters with Christ demand a response. Everyone has to give one. And there's no conscientious objectors in this spiritual war. This reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. He says, do not think I've come to bring peace, but a sword. We think about peace on earth, goodwill towards men. That King James-y, sing-songy version of, of the Words spoken by the angel in Luke chapter 2 to the shepherds. This is what's about to happen. Christ coming into the world. Peace on earth, peace on earth. And so the world oftentimes during Christmas time just grabs the words that they like devoid of Jesus. Uh, we like the peace word, peace. We like the joy world. Yeah, we all want some of that. We like the hope word. We like that too. And you'll see these words all over the place covered in Christmas lights and garland and They'll be used for marketing and all kinds of things. Because who doesn't like joy? Who doesn't want peace? Who doesn't want hope? But they divorce those things from Jesus. Jesus says, it doesn't work this way. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He says in that same chapter, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's the result of Christ's coming. 
And for those who refuse to come to Jesus, what is it that they will miss? Life. Life. Life eternal. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. It all comes down to this. You forsake Jesus. You reject Jesus. You reject eternal life. He goes on to press this indictment. These these guys are not ignorant. The issue here is not that they just didn't understand or they were really, oh God, we really want to believe your messenger. We really want to believe in the Christ and the Messiah when he comes. Please just help us see him. That is not the way these guys are thinking. And that indictment comes out over and over again. It was jealousy. It was hatred. It was hypocrisy. They wanted glory from people, unlike Christ. Look at what Jesus says as he continues, 41 through 42. He says, I do not receive my glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Now, he already said that his authenticity does not rely on man. He said that in verse 34 about John. When he switched gears to saying, well, John the Baptist is a witness of me, he quickly says, not that my testimony comes from man. Not that I'm relying on one other guy. Another sinful mortal. He's already said his authenticity does not rely on man. Here he says that he doesn't even receive glory from people. In other words, Jesus' glory, Jesus' value and his worth does not rely on the testimony of others. It doesn't matter what people think of him. In fact, the whole world could cast a vote For Jesus or against Jesus? Give Jesus glory? Don't give Jesus glory. Praise his name? Don't praise his name. The whole world could vote. And everyone could vote to not praise, not worship, not revel in and glory in Jesus. And he would still be glorious. It would be us that's at fault. His worth is not determined by consensus. And unlike these Jews, Jesus does not care to receive glory from people. The praise of the masses is a fickle thing. In fact, John the Baptist received praise from the masses, and how well did that work out for him? In other words, where were the Jews when he was arrested? Where were the Jews when he was beheaded? Jesus said earlier, you rejoiced in his light for a little while. It was real quick to disassociate from John when he's getting in trouble. Oh, yeah, what's with that guy? Will not Peter do the exact same thing to Christ and his rejection three times on the night of his betrayal? I'm not not with that guy. I'm not with Jesus. No, I'm not. It's not. He's not my friend. Why? Why? Because at that time, Peter was more concerned with glory from people than from God. He says, I know you do not have the love of God within you. Why? Why is it that he knows this? How does he know this? Here. What's he saying here that makes you go, ah, this this is the problem. The evidence that they do not have the love of God within them is because they crave the love of man. That's the evidence of it. They're craving the praise of man. He's going to continue saying the same kind of thing here. Let's let's keep looking at 43 through 44. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. 
If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I come in my Father's name. I've come to give glory to him. I've come to exalt in him. He already said before this, I can't do anything in my own name. I'm not coming to do my own agenda. I'm fulfilling his agenda. Perfect and absolute agreement with the Father. He's coming to give glory to, reverence to, praise to the Father. And we should follow Christ's example and give reverence and praise and glory to the Father. And he says that even though I'm doing that, I'm not coming to make myself great. I'm showing up, making much of the Father, and you do not receive me. And he, and he points out the hypocrisy of this. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Now, I wasn't looking for this, but I just was in, in my Bible time this morning, in my Bible app, I got to the next passage, and I was in Acts chapter 5 this morning. And I noticed there that when the people, uh, the Pharisees in that day, and the Sadducees together, hear the testimony of Peter and James and John, and they're hearing them exult in Christ, and the same Jewish religious leaders get all upset with them, and they try to kill them, because they see them doing miracles now. One wise Pharisee steps up, Gamaliel, and he goes, wait, 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 don't kill them. Maybe they are speaking for God. And he says this. He said, before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. It's a pretty big following. This guy shows up, and what does he do? He claims to be something. He came bearing testimony of himself, and it worked. 400 people show up. So goes it with everyone who tries this. didn't last long. Because you can either live for your own glory or the glory of Christ, but not both. You can't have both. These Pharisees, like so many men, live for their own glory rather than the glory of Christ. They crave the praise of men. It doesn't take long when you're reading through the Gospels and hear Jesus speaking to these very same religious types and his wagging his finger at their hypocrisy and pointing to them. In Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, he says, you don't give out of the goodness of your heart. You give because you want people to see you give. You don't pray because you want to relate to your heavenly Father. You pray because you want people to see you pray. You crave the best seats at all the feasts so others will gather around and think much of you. That's what you want. Praise from men. Even when you fast, a time that you should be in a place of, of, of robbing oneself of certain satisfactions in order to cry out to God, you're not even doing that because you want to hear from God. You want applause from men. He's constantly saying this about them. They crave the praise of men. And look at the warning. This is, this, is, this is an awesome warning and fearful warning. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? How can you? Now, this is a principled statement. This isn't one of those things that only applies to these guys in this one time. This is a principled statement. So, Everyone who hears my voice, hear carefully. If you crave the praise of humankind, if you want others to speak well of you and that's what you lean towards, how can you believe? That craving will hinder your faith. 
Your ability to believe will be greatly stunted if you care about what others think about you. That Instagram filter life, that's a dangerous life. Don't think for a second that that's innocuous. Don't think for a second that that won't impact your relationship with the Lord, that that won't in some way make harder your belief, your faith. And when times get dark and you need to dig deep, you're going to need all the faith you can have. That craving hinders our ability to believe. And our Lord provides a perfect example here. He says, our, our Lord does not crave praise from the world, and so neither should we. When you have the love of God in you, you don't need that praise. When your heart is filled with his love, you don't need to hear other people praise you. You don't need the attaboys and pats on the back in the same way. When you're getting that from the Lord, you don't seek it from men in the same way. Glory that comes from the only God is what we should be seeking. And what does it mean by glory here? That's, that's, a, that's a, a, a pointing to majesty and beauty and something celebration-worthy, praise-worthy. We receive a kind of glory from God. It's not worship. It's not praise in the worship sense from others. It's the kind of celebration of the reward of good that we see in James 4.10, the humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's not that God gets down and worships us. It's that he makes much of that good in us that he has put in there. We must repent of this desire to be loved by others when it presses out our desire to be loved by God. It can keep us from trusting in him. I've heard it said before, and I think this is true, and it it touches on this same point. Wherever you fear the most is where you trust God the least. And so often when we get into those places of great fear, we need to rely on faith. And the Bible does say there's different amounts of faith. You only need a little bit, a mustard seed to move a mountain, right? But many times Jesus Jesus indicts the people around him by saying, oh, you of little faith, you should have more faith. There will be days where we're going to need to draw upon our trust in him more than other days. And if we've been in the world and so attuned to hearing praise from others rather than praise from God, we're going to be in a suffering point. Your greatest fears, your greatest desires will tell you where your faith is. We must receive glory from God, not men. Seek what he wants. Seek his glory, his praise. That's what our focus should be on, not receiving praise from others. And Jesus himself, who is deserving of all glory and praise, even gives us this example. Verse 45 through 47, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Think about this with me. In the cosmic courtroom, and this scene is offered up occasionally in the New Testament, in the cosmic courtroom, Jesus says says here, he's not an attorney. He's not going to stand there and accuse. That's not his role in that courtroom. 
He's the judge. John 5, 22, in this discourse earlier, and I think that's what he's connecting here as he's closing this out. This is what he's connecting is verse 22. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Now, he said already they're in perfect agreement. So yes, in cor- yes, of course, there is a judgment from the father, but it is in perfect accord and agreement with the son. And so the son is the one who actually sits on that throne, the, the white throne of judgment that we see in Revelation 20. Jesus talked about that. We, we, I preached through that several weeks ago. We were looking through that passage that he did later in John 5. But in that cosmic courtroom, Jesus is not an attorney. He is the judge. Who's the attorney then? Who's the attorney? Moses. Moses is the attorney. Jesus is the judge. Moses is the prosecuting attorney. The spirit bears witness to every evil thought or deed. And unbelievers like these Jews are going to be in big trouble with no defense. That's what he says. There is one who accuses you, Moses. And it's not just Moses. Pause. He says what? Moses, on whom you have set your hope. You think Moses is on your side? He will accuse you for all of your law-breaking and refusal to come to me. You see, Satan seeks to accuse Christians and has no basis because our punishment has been paid for in Christ. But Moses will rightly accuse the Jews, those who have rejected him and have set their hope on him. This is a huge statement. They're going to be in big trouble. Let there be no confusion about it. This whole discourse is an unmistakable claim both to Jesus' divinity and his Messiahship. He is God. He is the Christ, the Messiah who has come, the Savior of the world and the Savior of these Jews. And he's basically saying to these Jews, as he says this here, if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What is Jesus saying here? You're not even good Jews. They were seen to be great Jews, weren't they? They were the people of God. They all, oh, they were the ones. And he says, you're not even good at Hebrews. You think you have Moses? You don't have Moses. You know, if you've been watching the news at all, you're familiar with the Israel, Gaza, Israel versus uh, Hamas, the issues over there in Palestine, and just the, not just the fact that Israel has been under assault from some atrocious Muslim terrorists that seek to destroy the Jewish people off the map. Cleanse and purge all of that part of the world, Israel. Purge it from every living Jew. That's the goal. Abject terrorism. You're watching some of this stuff online and Maybe the craziest stuff, if you're looking at this stuff, is just to see how many ignorant people in the West, especially, are celebrating the terrorists and pointing figures of judgment to a nation that is seeking to destroy the terrorists. I want to I make sure you're, you're thinking about this in, in a similar way to what I think we see Jesus talking about here. Because I'll say this first. I fully support the nation Israel killing every last terrorist that's been going after them. Obliterate them. 
The good protector destroys those who tries to destroy his home. I think it's entirely right for them to do. And we have no, I, I have no judgment whatsoever on the country who uses absolute, all the force at their disposal to wipe them off the map. But Christians, those Jews over there, they do not have God's word abiding in them. They are not God's people. And the proof of it, they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in him. They have rejected their Messiah. It doesn't matter if they can trace their lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. It doesn't matter if they've been sitting on that plot of land for thousands of years. They rejected the Messiah. They don't have Christ. They do not love God. They do not have his word abiding in them. They're terrible Jews. They don't even have Moses, who they say they have. We have Moses. And the reason that I say this is because I've been observing Christians all around the globe in the way that they're talking about this particular present conflict. And they show more support for Christ-hating Jews than for fellow professing Christians. It's very strange to me that Christians would do this. Like I said, I, I think it's entirely right, according to biblical truth and principles, to stand for those who are pushing terrorism off their borders, defending their own innocence. I think that's entirely appropriate and right before the Lord in a just war. My brothers and sisters, we're the real Israelites. We're the real Jews. We are the sons and daughters of Abraham. We have not rejected our Messiah, our Christ. Jesus literally, in the passage before this, the chapter before this, sits with a Samaritan woman who's in Palestine-controlled territory, for the record, today. Who's an entirely different enemy religion preaches truth to her and explains to her that the day is coming and is now here that the real worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, neither on this mountain, the false mountain of worship, and the false worshiper she was, nor the one in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter where you're living. It doesn't matter who you can trace your lineage back to in spirit and in truth. Christians, it's so important for us to think rightly and not just to jump on board with the latest Ben Shapiro's and Dennis Prager's and Jewish conservative pundits of the world. We're Christians. We submit to our Messiah. We believe Moses. We believe him. We believe what he said about Jesus. We believe what he said about a new coming prophet that'd be better than him, and anyone who doesn't listen to that prophet will die. He will not have life. If you're not a Christian here today, this is what we want for you to understand. We want for you to love and cherish the entirety of the Bible which says that you are a sinner. And because of your sin, you have separated yourself from God and you're deserving of punishment. You're deserving of God's just judgment. And the ultimate judgment is separation from him forever in hell. That's what all people deserve because of our sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How then can we have peace with him? The punishment due for our sins must be paid for. That's why Jesus came. Not to chill out in a little nativity scene as a baby for all of his days. Not just to experience life on a vacation from heaven for a bit. 
As a demonstration of God's love, he lived the perfect life, went to the cross to die, bearing the punishment for the sins of every human being who will ever believe. You and I can only have peace with God if we believe in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. We believe in Moses. We believe in the prophets. Every passage of scripture that points to him over and over, Old Testament and New Testament. If you're not a believer today, don't leave until you've talked with another Christian. Spend time. Just ask the questions that you have. Pray with us. Let us introduce you to God through his word, if that's not something that you've been doing. And we are aching for you to hear from him. But look at the last sentence here. If you do not believe his writings, Moses, Old Testament, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Which comes first? You see, some people think that if they could hear from Jesus, if he'll just show up, give me a vision, if he'll just fix a problem in my life, fill my heart, make me feel good about something, then I'll trust his word. Here, in this passage, look what Jesus says. If you don't believe Moses' writings, how you believe my words? Trust in the word. Trust in the Bible. Old Testament and new, which had yet, yet to have been written here yet, the new. Because the Bible is God's witness about his son. It's not merely a list of rules for holy living. It's not merely a historical account of the Hebrew people. It's not primarily a hymnal, a book of poems. It's not even a, just primarily a book of instructions for the church. It contains all of those things, to be sure. But primarily, God's word is a witness of a person. It witnesses Christ. Our Bible exists to point us to Jesus. I've repeated this so many times in John. The very end of this book, this is what John will say about why he wrote these things down. In verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why did he, why did he record these things? That we believe in Jesus. That's why I'm writing these things to you. Christians, is that what you get out of your time in the Word? Does your time in the Bible make you love and cherish Jesus more? Like these Jews, it is possible for you to study the Scriptures, pine over them, but if that study does not draw you closer to Christ, then that will be of no advantage to you. When you look in the Word, don't look just for answers. Look for a person. Look for a Christ. In other words, when you're reading through the Bible and you're struggling with something, you're struggling with depression, and so you go to the Word, I'm looking for a solution to depression. When you struggle with a sin, what's the way I can overcome this sin? You're dealing with a relational disharmony between you and somebody else, believer or not. I'm looking for, a, for an answer to how to solve that. You can too quickly, Christian, become like the Buddhist in the intro who's just looking for a cure. You and I don't need the cure. We need the healer. We need the healer. You need Christ. You need him. You can have a very sterile relationship with the Word and learn tons of stuff. 
But if you search the scripture day in, day out, and you don't see and revel in and glory in and grow in your love for Christ, you're doing it wrong. You need more than the cure. You need the one who provides it. So here's the point of application in closing. I think prayer must accompany your time in the Word. I think it's a critical, not just helpful, I think it's a critical part of your time in the Word. It's not just a textbook or a songbook or a history book. When you set aside time to read God's Word, if you don't also set aside time to pray, to relate to the one who gave us this Word, oh man, you're going to miss Your time in the Word is designed by God to draw you into deeper relationship with Him. That's what it's for. To marvel at Him. To revel in a relationship with Him. This isn't in the notes, but I'll just, I'll just say this. Do you, do you know our purpose? Do you know like what we're supposed to, what our generation's purpose is? If there are hundreds of generations of believers from the time of Christ until he returns, between the first and second coming of Christ. What, what's our purpose? What are we supposed to do? And I'll say that in the face of the question of the Old Testament. What was the point of the Old Testament generations? If we lived in the Old Testament, what were we supposed to do if we were in a generation right in the middle of that Old Testament period? And the answer is, remain faithful, stay in the land. That was it. Remain faithful to God and stay in the land. That's the summary. Why? Because the Messiah was going to come through the people of God in the land of God. That's what it was. That's what you're supposed to do. Stay faithful and stay put. And every time that they strayed from that, they got off of that path, things went to shambles and quickly. And what did God do in his infinite goodness? He continued to draw people back to faithfulness and back to the land. So what's our purpose? To preserve the word for the next generation. To preserve the word. Think about that. All those lessons you'll teach your kids. And then perhaps someday you'll want to pass to your grandkids. None of them matter if they aren't the word of God. Our purpose is to survive to the next generation and pass the truth we have received with even a greater and growing faithfulness to the next generation. It's why we're here. Who's going to build, who's going to build the kingdom? Is Christ going, man, if only you guys would just get on board and finally do the thing. No, I will build my church, Jesus promised, in the face of opposition. And what will he build it on? The rock. A trust in Christ and his word. That's what we're to do. You and I are to trust in and love the God of the Bible and pass this truth to the next generation. That's why we're here. Don't, don't, don't get too big in your britches. Don't think like, uh, like so many movies and, and stories and, and, and songs that point to us in our immediate selfish moment as the glorious center of all creation. Wrong. We're in a, we're in a line that's pointing to Christ and our job is to pass the truth we've been given to the next. Like a baton. No one giving glory to us but God. That's my appeal to you this morning. Because if you only see this as a list of facts and historical anecdotes and some nice songs from the ancient world, 
What motivation will you have to pass this to the next generation? But if we see this as our direct line access to the Messiah, Christ, the creator of the universe, who came to save the immortal souls of all who believe. If you see it like that, sons, daughters, this is how you know Christ. Know him. How much better than passing a textbook to the next generation? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, the errors that we face, the temptations we struggle with, are the exact same ones every generation struggles with, all the way back to the beginning. And not just the beginning of our Christian faith in Christ's resurrection, but even back to the beginning. Father, we've all wanted to be our own God. You, too, can be God. Why not receive worship like Him? Why not receive glory and praise and worship? The serpent whispered into the ears of Eve and Adam. Father, I pray that we would seek your glory. And because we'd be seeking your glory so much, just like the wise men who travel over deserts and thousands of miles to find the Messiah, King, baby Jesus, I pray that we would seek the scriptures for Jesus, that we would be just as diligent to look for him there as the wise men were diligent in looking in Bethlehem. Father, I pray that we would relate to you so deeply in your word that it wouldn't just be a helpful collection of anecdotal historical facts. It wouldn't merely be good songs and all the things we've just been discussing. But God, this would be a line of access of growing relationship and love for you. Lord, that's not possible to do apart from your spirit's work. And so God, please, I beg of you, go into the hearts and the souls of my brothers and sisters here Draw into there a desire to know and relate to you more fully through your word, and let that be true. Father, for those who do not yet know you, I pray they would repent of their sins, turn in faith to Jesus Christ, trust in your living word. Help us to preserve this in faithfulness for the next generation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.